Turning your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 1. Our text this morning is John 1, 1 through 3, and then verse 14. So please hear the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead into... uh, I need to skip ahead to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we have opened your scriptures, have heard your holy word read, have glimpsed the glory of Christ here in this passage, so I pray that you would now assist us by your Spirit. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, open our eyes, that we may see Jesus as he is revealed in your word. We pray in his name. Amen. My wife uh, recently made our Christmas cards, and we were horrified when uh, she got home and, and she pointed it out to me that instead of saying Merry Christmas, you know, at the very least, it said Happy Holidays, because uh, you know how it goes when you go down to the Walgreens or wherever and you put in the, the picture and then it gives you the little sayings on the bottom, and she didn't see that. But uh, it, it mattered enough to my wife and I uh, that um, we went back and redid all the Christmas cards uh, because it just the idea of taking Christ out of Christmas and just simply saying Happy Holidays was was insufficient. Our, our children were mortified. You were being so irresponsible with money. <laughs> they told us. <laughs> I think they were just worried that uh, that might have been some of their Christmas presents that uh, they may be missing out on. Every Christmas sermon, it seems, uh, over the last generation uh, addresses the uh, commercialization of Christmas and the secularization of our society. It seems as if the encroach, encroachments of, of secularism on, uh, on, on our faith has, has made it so that you feel like you can't preach a Christmas sermon without speaking against this commercialization and secularization. Uh, it is particularly worrisome that Christianity, and in particular Jesus, is being forcibly and sometimes legislatively, um, he is being pushed out of our national identity. But I declare to you that Jesus does not lose his identity when we, as a people, or we as a nation fail to recognize him. We can kick Jesus completely out of our culture, but his kingdom will not suffer at all. 
I was thinking about this about this this very thing this week. Uh, we could look at Europe, and there are nations. The nations of Europe uh, typically have a strong Protestant um, or a, a strong identifi- identification uh, with Protestant Christianity. Germany adopted Protestant Christianity as its national religion. And to this day, Germans pay a tax that supports the church, that supports the Lutheran church. England, to this day, the Anglican church is the national church of England. Scotland is officially a Presbyterian country. But history has shown that the very moment that a national government and the church join in partnership, the church dies a quick death. In Germany, even though the church exists, it really doesn't exist. They were so impotent that they were unable to stop um, Germany's rush to the First World War and Hitler's rush to the Second World War. Um, Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And because it is a spiritual, spiritual kingdom, it cannot be legislatively governed or sanctioned. Christ's kingdom is above all earthly rule and is completely ungovernable by the power of man. And so Daniel chapter 4, God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Isaiah chapter 40 verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. God weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Regardless of our faith. Regardless of the strength of the church or of Christianity here in America. King Jesus continues to sit on his throne. He continues to rule. He continues to reign. A great example of this is another nation, the nation of China. China is a communist country where the church has been outlawed, but the church is growing more rapidly in China than it is in America. There are millions and millions of Chinese Christians who are meeting together in secret churches. And instead of the government and society influencing the church, the spread of the gospel in China is little by little beginning to influence their culture. And so... Jesus is not up in heaven fretting over the encroaching secularism that is overtaking our country. Jesus is, and he always will be, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. How do we know that? 
We know it because His Word tells us. Here in our text, we see three things about Jesus. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Jesus is the divine Word. Jesus is the incarnate Word. And Jesus is the saving Word. And so, as we look here at this first point that Jesus is the divine Word, I recognize that John chapter 1 is not traditionally a Christmas passage. The first two chapters of Matthew and of Luke, well, those are the traditional Christmas passages. They give the historical accounts of Christ's birth, the things that Billy was telling the the children about. He read those from Matthew one and uh, Matthew one and two and uh, Luke one and two. But John here. Instead of giving us a historical account of Jesus' birth, he gives us a theology of Christmas. And so the first thing we see when we come to verse 1 is that Christ is an eternal being as we are looking at Jesus, the divine word. Children, I want you to hear me on this. Jesus' life did not begin at Bethlehem when he was born. Jesus has always been. It says here in the, in the scripture, in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. John 1.1 1, 1 intentionally mirrors another passage of scripture. What passage of scripture is he intentionally mirroring? Well, you know it. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God. And John wants us to hear this, this, this uh, echo of Genesis 1 when he says, In the beginning was the Word. And what John is doing is he is identifying Jesus as the eternal God. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, you read over and over again, And God said... He says it eight times. And God said, let there be light. And God said, over and over, as God is creating the world. Why is that important? And God said. Because it is God's spoken word that created the world. And so John is identifying for us who it was, which person of the Trinity created the world. In the beginning was the Word, and and God said, let there be. It's Jesus who created the world. Uh, John is informing us that Jesus is the Creator. He's also informing us that God's Word is a, is a person. It's not simply an influence of God, not simply the power of God's spoken Word. No, this Word that created the world is indeed a person. Because he goes on, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Or in verse 2, talking about the Word, He was in the beginning with God. He's talking about a personality, a person. In fact, this sheds light on this little statement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when it said, God said, let us 
who is God talking to when He says us? Who is around then when God is creating? Let us make man in our image. I submit to you that the us here is God the Father talking to the other persons of the Trinity, talking to His Word, talking to Jesus. Let us make man in our image, let us in our, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God was speaking to the Word. He was speaking to Jesus. Jesus is our Creator. In Colossians chapter 1, we read it a few minutes ago. For by Him all things, talking about Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. John says the same thing here in our text. Look at verses 2 and 3. He was, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, verses 2 and 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Creator. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of His mouth. And again, he is speaking um, symbolically of Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. Jesus is not simply a force. He's not a created being. He's not an angel. He was with God in the beginning, before anything was created. In fact, he was and he is the Creator. The Trinity is a mystery. There's been different ways that people have tried to explain the Trinity, but it is a mystery to the mind of man. There's only one God, but three fully distinct persons. And all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are fully and completely God. The Father's not one-third God, the Son's not one-third God, and the Spirit's not one-third God. That's not it at all. They are all fully, completely, 100% God. Fully, completely distinct persons, yet one God. Men have vainly tried for the last 2,000 years to explain this. And they have not, they will not The infinite God is too big to fit in the human brain, but He fits very nicely in the heart by faith. So Jesus is eternal. He was with God in the beginning. Uh, He is a person. Uh, He was with God. And also, He is God. Again, the the very end of verse 1. And the Word was God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, others have tried to uh, throw a wrench in this because they want to say that Jesus is an angel or a created being or something like that. But the Scripture is clear. He is God. 
Now the question becomes, why is John laboring so hard to point to drive this point home? Why is John starting off his gospel with these very bold statements? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why would he drive this point home? The reason he's doing this is he wants to drive home to us the glory of the Incarnation. So you look at verse 14. And this is the second point. Jesus is the incarnate Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has always existed in eternity. Verse 14 says that He added humanity to His nature. Jesus did not stop being God in order to become human, but rather in His incarnation, He gained a human body. Or as Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells or lives in bodily form. He is still fully and completely God. He is also fully and completely human. So Jesus is one person with two natures. He has a divine nature. He has a human nature. And this has always been staggering to me when I stop and think about it. And I don't know if I can fully, completely let you enter into my thoughts. And But when I think of Jesus, that He is fully God and He took on human flesh and remains a human for all eternity. That staggers me. Uh, he, he is God and man forever. He keeps His human nature forever. He didn't simply take on human flesh for a, for a temporary time. He took on flesh and He keeps it. Why would Jesus become human? Why would He completely, for all eternity, take on human flesh? Well, the reason is, um, it enabled Him to suffer in our place. Think about that. For all eternity, Jesus will forever have a human body like ours. Now, it's been glorified since He's gotten to heaven, uh, as we will have a glorified body when we go to heaven. But for all eternity, He will have that human body. In other words, it wasn't simply a, a wrinkle in time for Him to come and live on the earth for 30 years and then die on the cross and then everything returns to the way it was. And No, He was willing to take on human flesh for all eternity because it enabled Him to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. It allowed Him to suffer in our place. Jesus wasn't simply half-human. He was fully and completely human. When He became a human, He gained a human mind, He gained a human heart, so that He could feel all that we feel, so that He could experience all our sorrows, all our joys, all our weariness, and even all our temptations. 
so that He could identify with us to be our perfect Savior. Hebrews chapter 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let me ask this question. What does this say about God's desire for our salvation? That He willingly and eagerly sent Jesus here to earth to become a human in order that He might die for humans. Or to think about the same thing from a different perspective. What does this say about Jesus' love for us? That He willingly and eagerly left the perfection of heaven to come down into our world to take on an imperfect human flesh and what I mean by imperfect I mean not one that um, that is sinful I don't mean that at all but I mean one that was weak he left his 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 throne of glory to come and take I guess the weakness of our flesh so that he could become one of us what does that say about his love for us that he was willing to do that it goes on in verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us all the commentators talk about this word dwelt uh, it means um, more more literally he tabernacled among us and the reason why that's important is it points to the tabernacle and it points to uh, God coming and living in the midst of Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness uh, it was also the place where God displayed his glory the glory of God would come down on the, the tabernacle and also it was the place where the sacrifices were, were offered and Jesus was the perfect sacrifice um, but why did he come and dwell with us well it says in verse 14 and we have seen his glory in other words the reason he came and made his dwelling with us is to display God's glory he's the word what does the word do well, the Word speaks, the Word reveals. The Word reveals to us. Jesus, as the Word of God, reveals to us God's glory. So, for instance, in John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Every word that Jesus spoke... Every attitude that was displayed on his face, every miracle that he performed, and especially his death on the cross, revealed the glory of God. It revealed God's great love for sinners. He is the incarnate word in order that he could become, and this is the last point, the saving word. It says here again in verse 14 that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the saving word because he is full of grace and truth. I want to consider these ideas of grace and truth. I want to start with truth first. Jesus lives in heaven. He will come back one day today or uh, one day. But it's always interesting to me how people get so excited when they think they see a picture of Jesus 
in a cloud form, formation as, as the clouds are lazily moving along the sky or, or even uh, more ridiculously they see uh, Jesus in, in, in a deformed piece of fruit you know, I think that the only thing that is revealed when people see Jesus in a piece of fruit is that they are fruity. <laughs> Jesus doesn't reveal himself in pieces of bread or pieces of fruit or things like that. He reveals himself in his word. You know, the most glorious activity that we can engage in during the Christmas season is spending time in God's Word because when we spend time in God's Word with our eyes we can behold and with our ears if we're reading it out loud we can hear and with our hearts we can believe and trust in and know our Savior. Jesus is the Word of God. He is full of truth. And because He is full of truth, He reveals the glory of God to us. And then secondly, He is also full of grace. We always emphasize that grace is a free gift. And it is a free gift. But it's also a costly gift. Christ purchased by His blood shed on the cross all the grace that we need. He was full of grace. We don't need to add anything else to His grace. If you have Jesus and you have His grace, that is all you need. And so it's left to us to trust in Him, to embrace Him. Because in embracing Him, we are embracing His grace. And so to conclude, I want to remind you this morning of who Jesus is. It's very easy to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior, to proclaim that He was the King, that He's the King. But when we start getting squeezed by life, or when our country starts getting squeezed by secularism, or when our country gets caught up in the commercialism of Christmas or of our everyday lives, it's very easy to forget that Jesus indeed is on the throne. That He's the King. That He's reigning. That He's ruling. But let me tell you, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, He is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning despite the best efforts of the nations of the world to kick Him to the side. His kingdom is flourishing. He knows what He's doing. He is on the march. And even today, He is conquering hearts and lives for His kingdom. We don't need to wring our hands that America is losing its Christian Christian identity. So am I saying it is wrong to fight for our Christian heritage? No, I think it is proper. I think it is right that we fight for our Christian heritage. But not with weapons. Not 
primarily at the ballot box. The weapons that God has ordained that we use in this fight begins on our knees in prayer. And it begins with our mouths. It begins with our displays of selfless love for our neighbor. As we seek God in prayer, ask Him to extend His kingdom in our lives and in all the um, circles of influence that we have and as we preach the good news of Jesus Christ. The weapons of our warfare, prayer and the word, Jesus will supply the grace and the power. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we have considered the theology of Christmas this morning, I pray that it would not be for us simply theological statements that we shelve in our mind, but rather that our hearts, our lives, our commitments would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would be reminded, that we would be encouraged that Jesus Christ is on the throne. And though the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand against you and against Christ, your anointed, that you scoff and you laugh at them because your purposes are being brought to pass in spite of them. We thank you, our God, that you are a God not to be trifled with, but one that we can entrust to you completely. And so we do so. Hear us, we pray, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.